This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. I pray that you would speak to each of us by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, we're beginning a three-part preaching series entitled Christ in All of Scripture. And once again, we're using the appointed readings for each Sunday uh, as the basis for this. You may recall when Jesus encountered two of the disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself, beginning with Moses and the prophets. That's one teaching of Jesus that I wish I could have been there for. Early on in his teaching, Jesus said he'd not come to abolish the law, that is the teaching of Moses and the prophets, but rather to fulfill it. And so the story of Jesus is the continuation of and the culmination of the story that began in the Old Testament. Well, this morning, we're going to take a look at the theme of Christ, the new Moses. And in our epistle reading today, we see the writer of the letter to the Hebrews briefly comparing and contrasting Moses and Jesus. And for this writer, it seems to be all about building a house. Seven times in six verses, we see the word house. And the psalm today, the only psalm attributed to Moses, begins by talking about a dwelling place. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses, in this prayer, begins by declaring where his hope lies, which, by the way, was the real issue for the man who came to Jesus in our gospel reading, which I'll get to in a bit, for he, too, wanted to know about his eternal dwelling place. In Psalm 90, we see that Moses has a sense of the big picture, even as he cries out to God for help, wondering how long he will have to wait for God to act. Now, of course, Moses was a man who was used to having to wait. He'd spent most of his life in the wilderness. And you may recall, he'd spent 40 years tending sheep before God called him to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land. And then there was another 40 years back in the wilderness. It's this Moses who declares, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. And then at the end of that psalm portion today, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Moses, we are told in the passage from Hebrews, was faithful in all God's house as a servant, and that he testified to things that would be spoken later. Moses, you may recall, had gone out into the wilderness the first time when he'd fled there in fear of his life after he'd killed someone. And yet, while he was there, he was faithful and stayed attentive to God, eventually hearing God calling him from that burning bush. And though reluctantly and timidly and not before arguing with God about how inadequate he felt, 
He did what God asked him to do. He went back to Egypt and faithfully called out the people together. He then spoke truth to power in front of Pharaoh and with signs and wonders led the people out of slavery. And it was after all of that and after they'd been led through the Red Sea on dry land that God gave the law, the Ten Commandments, to Moses for the people. And it's in those commandments that we see how God's rescued people are called to live their lives. And so, of course, Moses was rightly revered as the faithful servant who brought the law to the people. And so I want to talk about this contrast and comparison. First, the comparison to Jesus. Like Moses, Jesus came as one who would rescue his people from slavery. Not slavery to an oppressive overlord for the people under Pharaoh, or in Jesus' time as they were hoping, under the Romans. No, something much bigger. Freedom from the slavery of sin. Like Moses, Jesus came to bring life, and through his teaching, taught the way for the rescued, redeemed people of God to live. Well, here's the contrast. Whereas Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant, pointing to God through the law, Jesus was himself the way to God. He was the very son of God. He was the word of God. And Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. Jesus was the very builder of God's house. And this house was not a portable tabernacle or tent that was carried by the people of Israel in the wilderness, nor the temple that stood when Jesus lived on earth, but rather the living temple for all eternity. And whereas Moses and the people of Israel were incapable of keeping the law, Jesus did so fully. The story of the rich man who came to Jesus, I think powerfully and poignantly illustrates this. So let's take a look. We don't know much about the man who came to Jesus, but I want to suggest that if this fellow had a personal mission statement, it would have included these two slogans. First, God helps those who help themselves, and second, moderation in all things. Uh, by the way, neither of those are in the Bible, just so you rem are reminded. And by all accounts, he was a respectable, self-made man. I'm sure he had a strong work ethic, lived a moral life, and likely was not guilty of excessive living. As far as we can tell, he was successful, respectable, and wealthy. It's worth remembering that in those days, wealth, honestly gained, was a sign of respectability. It was a sign of standing in the community. Indeed, more than that, it was seen as a sign of God's blessing. The first thing that is striking in this man's approach to Jesus is that he runs up to him. He's clearly eager. Next, he kneels before Jesus. There's something very sincere about this man and his approach. We're not given any reason to think that he's not genuine. He seems to understand that Jesus is a great teacher and someone who may even have the key to eternal life. So he asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Why do you call me good? Jesus responds. No one is good but God alone. 
And that seems a bit of an odd response. I mean, is Jesus toying with him? Is he, is he being clever? No. I think his response was designed to get this man to slow down and think more deeply about who Jesus was and what he was really asking him. I mean, of course, the irony is that he was absolutely right to address Jesus as good. It's just that that truth and the fullness of that seems lost on him. Well, Jesus continues and takes the man's request very literally concerning what he must do. And so Jesus reminds him of the second half of the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses. These are the commandments that speak about right behavior, about what to do or not to do. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your parents, etc. Now, to keep those commandments, we all know, is not easy, especially if we interpret them as Jesus did. You remember how Jesus said that to have hatred for another is as good as murder. To look at a person lustfully is as good as adultery. But taken literally, as no doubt this rich man did, these were laws that he could say he had kept. Teacher, I've kept all these since my youth. He gives himself a high grade. Jesus takes him at his word, and I think his response is very instructive. He looks at him with compassion. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Again, there's no suggestion that this fellow's a fraud. I think he's probably lived his personal mission statement. He's a kind of self-made fellow. He's worked hard and he feels blessed. But Jesus sees beyond that, beyond the respectability and the eagerness, the very portrait of a self-made moderate man, and responds by challenging him to the very core of his being. And he asks him to be extreme, not moderate. He asks him to give up all that he's worked so hard to achieve. You see, Christ, the new Moses, asks for more than mere law-keeping. Jesus says to him, you lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And when he heard this, he was shocked. And he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. What a tragic, tragic outcome. This is the only place in the Gospels where someone is directly invited to come with Jesus, and yet they walk away, refusing to be a disciple. And the reason? Well, for this man, it was money. He wanted a way to inherit eternal life that didn't require him to change his values or his way of living, but Jesus asked him to do both. He thought he could earn eternal life, that there was something he could do to attain it. Now, of course, he's not the first or last person to think that way. But if you think about the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, you'll see that the question is fundamentally flawed. He's asking about an inheritance, which is by its very nature a gift. There's nothing anyone can do to get an inheritance. The, well, I guess, except kill someone, but we'll, we'll, get, we'll get there. 
the rich man has missed the point of his own question. He seems to view eternal life as something that can be achieved or worked for or earned instead of truly receiving as an inheritance. The idea that God will help those who help themselves because they somehow deserve eternal life because of how good they are or how hard they've worked is absurd. Not one of us deserves eternal life. Not one of us deserves God's forgiveness. Eternal life is a free gift from God. And like any earthly inheritance, this free gift is available only because someone has been killed. Someone has died. Jesus. And his death on the cross is the only way that eternal life has been made possible. And so it's only by setting aside those things that consume us and and by giving up our self-reliance and following Jesus that we can have this eternal life. And yet, while we can't do anything to merit that gift, we can't do anything to inherit it, we can do something about those things that can get in the way of us receiving all that God wants to give to us. You know, at the end of the day, being a follower of Jesus is not about being moral or nice or having everything going for you. Being a follower of Jesus is about receiving salvation and then following him. And only God can save. And Jesus spoke the truth plainly and lovingly. And unlike what I suspect we might be tempted to do, he didn't go running after the rich man when he went away. He let him go. The rich man may have had a full bank account, but it seems his heart was empty. Jesus wasn't telling the man to give his money away because the poor needed it, though I'm sure they did. He was telling the man to give his money away because he needed to be rid of it. Because for this man, his wealth and his attitude toward it were preventing him from following Jesus. Jesus looked at him and loved him and invited him to follow him. And there and then, the man faced a choice. Do I trust my money, my security, myself, or do I trust Jesus? And he made his choice, and he went away. Jesus put his finger on where this man's trust and allegiance really lay. He'd made an idol out of his success, his money, his respectability, his moderation, his law-keeping, and, and all of the above. And Jesus' invitation to go and sell his stuff and come follow him was, in a sense, an appeal to the beginning part of the Mosaic law, to the beginning of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not Make for yourself any idol. And so Jesus, the new Moses, summarizes the law. As we say every week in church, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is a grenade that will blow up your life. That's certainly what it was for the young man that came to Jesus. For how easily we can put someone 
or something other than God in first place in our lives. It's easy to love God in theory. It's easy to say we will follow Jesus when all is going well. It's easy to come to church and sing the hymns and listen to the sermon and say the creed. But what happens when those things in our lives that really matter to us are challenged or come undone? And for the rich man, it was his money. And for you, what would that one thing be? Who or what in your life might be coming between you and Jesus, between you even and eternal life? Who or what have you not surrendered to God, but instead have made into an idol? What might Jesus be calling you to let go of or embrace in order that you might be freed up to receive his gift of love and healing and forgiveness. People or things or attitudes can have a hold over us. They become a stronghold, and they can come between us and God. It could be money. It could, of course. But it could be many things. It could be past sins or failings or hurts. It could be a wrong relationship or a, a secret sin or a grudge or resentment that we won't let go of. Now, while this story about the rich man is so sad and there's so much that we don't want to copy from him, there are things that we can learn from him. Like him, we should come to Jesus this morning. Come running, eager to see what he might have to say to you. Like the rich man, kneel before Jesus and dare to ask the question, what must I do? And then, like the rich man, listen. Listen to what Jesus has to say. Be aware of the thoughts that may come to your mind. Take stock of what the Holy Spirit may convict you of. But I have to add a warning. Like the rich man, you might be shocked with what Jesus has to say. And Jesus told the young man to do something pretty extreme. Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. But what might Jesus be saying to you? And I think it's worth remembering that the things in our lives that keep us from being all that God would have us be are not necessarily intrinsically bad things. But if they are a barrier between us and God, then they must be surrendered. Because God demands first place in our hearts above everyone and everything else. And so when it comes to following Jesus, he does not call us to moderation. Jesus wants us to be sold out for him, to let go of whatever stands between us and him, so that we can receive the wonderful inheritance promised and Jesus doesn't guarantee an easy ride. In fact, on the contrary, he, he warns we may first persecutions. But he does promise us life, eternal life. Indeed, he has been our dwelling place in all generations. And this morning, I think all of this comes down to a question of trust. Do you believe that Jesus 
has your best interests at heart. And so will you trust Jesus with your singleness, with your marriage, with your job, with your home, with your kids, with your health? Will you trust Jesus with you fill in the blank? Some of you might be thinking, but Jonathan, this is too hard. And if you're thinking that, you're in very good company, because I often think that. And it's exactly what the disciples thought. Jesus said to them in verse 24, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are greatly astounded and said to one one another, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it's impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. And so no matter how hard it can be to receive this word and act upon it, no matter how impossible it may seem, with God it is not impossible. And please, please remember, God is not out to get you. He only and always has your very best interests at heart. And Jesus says, verse 29, I tell you the truth, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So, I don't know what or who may be coming between you and God today. And, and maybe there is, there is nothing, and that's wonderful. But perhaps there is something. Perhaps there is someone. I don't know whether God may be asking you to let go of something in order to receive the life that he offers. But I hope and I pray that you would not be like the rich man who went away sad but rather that you would follow Jesus and be the person he's calling you to be, that you do what he asks you to do, in order that nothing, nothing would come between you and God's great love for you. How do you receive this word today? How will you go out from here in a little while? Will you go away sad? I hope not. There's a sense in which no one's going to go chasing after you. Jesus didn't do that with this man. But please don't go away. Stay a while. And and whatever it is that you have put in God's place, bring that to the foot of the cross. And then do whatever God is calling you to do. This morning, Come to the Lord's table and receive the bread of life and the cup of salvation. Feed on him, for Jesus, the new Moses, not only fulfilled the law of life, but he gave his own life for you and for me, that we might have eternal life, that we might find forgiveness and healing and dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.